Welcome, my name's AJ Aurora and I'm a student here on the MBA program at Cambridge Judge Business School. We're only a couple of months in, but it quickly became apparent that almost every conceivable industry and function is represented here on the course. So we wanted to make use of that incredible diversity to go behind the scenes and help you get a feel for what it's really like to work in some of the world's most coveted careers and companies. In this podcast, we'll take a closer look at a world that's quite alien to me, that of finance. But as the year goes on, we hope to bring in more of the class representing other industries and functions too. A few of my classmates have kindly taken time out from their incredibly hectic MBA schedules to give us an insider's perspective. So just to kick off, it would be great if you could each introduce yourself and briefly walk us through the path that got you into finance. My name's Nick Newman. I'm a, an Australian, but I've worked in, in New Zealand um, for the last six years. So I'm actually a lawyer by trade, four years in a, in a law firm doing transactional banking and finance work. But the last two years with an investment bank, there are an Australian investment bank called Macquarie. Uh, and I was doing what's called risk management for them, which is essentially um, a part of the investment banks that have grown exponentially um, since the financial crisis. And in fact, at Macquarie was the only department that had grown year on year since the financial crisis. So very important part of the, of the investment banking world. Um, and is essentially what I was doing is called compliance, legal and regulatory risk is for one of a better phrase, but it was keeping the um, the traders, the stockbrokers, um, out of the newspapers and, and out of jail. <laughs> Hi, um, so my name is Wisely. So I come from Hong Kong. Uh, I actually started my uh, career as an auditor with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, then I joined banking industry in the client coverage function, taking care of China corporate clients and also financial institution clients in Northeast Asia region. Um, right before coming to Judge, um, I worked in a China uh, Chinese private equity firm in Beijing. Hi, my name is Aaron Barkas, and I worked at KPMG in their advisory services. Um, uh, my background is accounting, so I studied accounting in school. And uh, upon graduating, I got my CPA, which is certified public accountant. Um, and the one nice thing about going to KPMG is it's a full-service firm, and so you kind of can move around to different areas that you're really interested in. And so being interested in finance, I was able to be put in their uh, structured finance group and worked in the structured finance group for about um, for about the last four years. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Erlen Kanset. Uh, I'm a Norwegian, and I work for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund based in New York. Um, I work on the active equity side in the U.S. financials team, so I look at insurance companies and large-cap banks. We try to pick the best stocks to buy, basically. Um, my background is economics, and I also have a master's degree in finance. Um, started working uh, for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund straight out of school, straight out of grad school, and I've been with the, the company for uh, four years now. My name is Patrizio Parini. I'm Italian. Uh, I studied economics as a bachelor and then I have a master in finance. So finance was a pretty natural outcome. Uh, after my master, I started working for PwC in their advisory practice for two years, basically covering financial institutions, mostly insurance companies. After that, I switched to client coverage in uh, the largest Italian bank for two years. And then I moved to the planning and control department of corporate investment banking division of the same bank, which is called uh, Intesa San Paolo. It's, um, as I said before, it's the largest Italian bank, but it's also a 
strong, relatively strong in Europe. I think it's like the sixth or seventh largest bank in Europe. My job was pretty peculiar over there. My last job was pretty peculiar because I was in charge basically of reviewing the profitability of every major deal that the bank went through in the last two years. So I had a pretty wide overview of the operation where which are taking place in a, in a major bank, and the, that's the reason why I'm here, because I think that I know quite a bit about different uh, uh, activities that are going on in banking industries. So that's kind of a lot of pretty impressive terms and jobs, and so what I'd quite like to do is kind of um, demystify a little bit about what the, because finance is quite a big, <coughs> big umbrella term, but actually, you know, you guys have quite different jobs, and so if you could just sort of, you know, it's Monday morning, when you guys go into the office, what's your typical day? I know it's it's a bit of a strange question because you probably work quite diverse projects, but I just wanted to get a flavour of to what extent your worlds are similar and to what extent they're quite different. I think maybe that might be a way to do that. So if one of you just want to sort of start off. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to start if you want. Yeah. Um, but ra- rather than maybe a, a typical Monday, maybe it'd be best to kind of in general just describe how sure. how the, sure. the job was, was divided up. And for me, it's quite it was quite um, relatively regular in the sense that about half my day Maybe 40% was done um, reviewing the trades done by the investment, um, by the stockbrokers the previous day. So we would have a, an alert system that would fire up and tell us whether there'd been a trade that looked like um, potential for market manipulation or potential for any kind of other um, break in regulation or break in law. And then it would be my job to kind of delve really deeply into that particular trade. So it might be a a line of a million shares that have been sold or, you know, 500,000 that have been bought. And I'd have to look at the client that was done for, the instruction that came from the client. Um, and at any point, are you speaking to the client or is this all sort of happening, you know? No, all, all back in. It's a good question. But my, so the, the only client-facing role in my particular team was the, the brokers themselves who were talking to the institutions who were buying and selling shares on a daily basis. But the way... Um, our job was described, or you know, the way we thought about a job is that we had internal clients. So, as a you know, risk management officer, my client was the stockbrokers or the research analysts who I was helping get through their day-to-day, week-to-week work. So, and then outside of that, the other fifty percent would be project-based work. So, to, whether there's a particular line of business that, that the bank would want to start doing. So, one of the um, projects I worked on is the bank wanted to start trading energy derivatives in New Zealand, and so we had to go start from scratch and figure out how they get into the into that space. So half the day kind of looking backwards on the last 24 hours of trading, and the other half looking forward to you know trying to getting the bank into a place to make more money. Mm. What about everyone else? How's your kind of days divided up? And if you had to, so like uh, our day is pretty flexible because um, you <coughs> usually will have multiple projects on hand and each project will be at a different phase. So maybe i just like share a little bit about how we do sure. a normal transaction. So basically, um, first step, usually you do um, market research and company research to identify a good target to invest in. So that will involve a lot of like quantitative analysis and also like uh, talk to the experts in a particular industry. And after that, you have to negotiate with the target company for like price. Like to, you have to evaluate how much the company is actually worth. And then you have to negotiate with the company whether they are satisfied with this this um, price and to close the deal. And after and after that, we'll make investment. And after investment, that's the really when the hard work starts because you you actually uh, run into the management and operation of the business, the company, and you have to like execute your uh, profit ma- maximizing plan you uh, you have started like in your uh, investigate uh, invest- investment research phase. 
So then in that phase, you may need to restructure an inefficient business unit in the company, or you have to help them to expand in a new market or a new business unit. Um, so how do you identify prospects in the first place? Are you, is there sort of, I mean, you know, how, are you just out there speaking to so, people and word of mouth or is there databases you're using or how are you? Yeah, so basically um, we will, as a, a every private equity firm, they will have a, their uh, investment philosophy. So they know which kind of industry they want to invest in and they will have a general view. So after that, we will look into this particular industry and some companies in this industry and just do research and see which is would be uh, that we can add, actually add value to that company. How do you get the information, given that they're mostly privately held? So um, part of the information are from uh, financial advisories, so major investment banks. So um, these financial advisors, sometimes they will have some potential target companies and they will approach uh, private equity firms, say, okay, here is the company, see if you are interested in. And also we will have other channels um, for example, some friends or other professionals or law firms. Um, so they will help maybe help some companies to do like due diligence research and then they will provide information as well. Yeah, so with KPMG, one of the advantages of being a full service firm is that you get a broad range of different types of financial, um, I guess, projects you work on. But being more in the structured finance group, uh, a lot of our focus was on securitization transactions which for those who aren't familiar with securitization, it's when you package loans of a particular asset class and you you know, you know sell it to investors and... Um, like mortgage-backed securities, for example. Mortgage-backed security <laughs> is, uh, yeah, is, a, is a securitization <laughs> transaction. And so th- there's definitely advantages to it. One of the advantages is um, it raises capital for the issuer. And another advantage for the investor is that they're able to pick a class within the securities that they're interested in, depending on their risk appetite. And so a typical Monday morning, uh, we would, uh, maybe the week before, we heard from the issuer of the debt and then also the underwriter who would notify, hey, we're doing a transaction next week. We got to, you know, the debt market's really good. We got to get this transaction out. So get to the office Monday morning, we'll get the data tape, a very large set of data tape from the issuer. From there, we'll run tables, analysis on it. Um, Part of our team will analyze the collateral part, and the other part will do the modeling. And so they'll look at the cash flows. When um, When will these loans be expected to be paid off? When will the investors expect to receive it? So are we talking days here in terms of your analysis? As in, so this isn't a long-term thing that's happening over weeks and months. You know, this is being turned around very quickly. Is that is that fair? Or? Yeah, so it, it seems like it depends on the deal. Um, so some deals, you know, they're very large. And, uh, there's a lot of analysis that kind of goes on, a lot of due diligence that happens before. But some deals, I mean, they're about $300 million, which is a r- relatively small deal. <laughs> Which could happen in a day, and um, oftentimes though you're you're prepared for that transaction, and so when it does come in, you kind of know what type of tables you want to analyze, you know what type of uh, I guess work product you want to get out, and so um, typically you'll spend you know a number of hours in the morning. You know the collateral team will analyze the collateral, then the modeling will do the modeling, and in the evening you'll from from the lawyers to get the offering documents of the prospective supplements. And from there, you'll look through the prospective supplement, review kind of what you reviewed in the morning, 
determine, you know, whether or not it's presented correctly to investors. If, you know, there's historical data that needs to get in there, that you talk to the issuer, you're working with the lawyers, or you're working with the underwriters, you're kind of working with a bunch of different parties, trying to get this document finalized, um, you know, sent to uh, Edgar or the SEC. And is it easy? I mean, uh, because um, one part of me thinks, well, maybe it is because everyone's interests are aligned in getting the deal done and getting paid. But at the same time, that is quite a lot of agencies. I mean, how easy is it to manage all that? Yeah. Yeah, so I would say that's one of the most challenging parts of the job because, I mean, I worked at the L.A. office, and so our lawyers would be, you know, they could be in Chicago, and the underwriters would be in New York, and then our issuers will be in Virginia. And so you're working with, you know, four different parties across, you know, the whole nation, three different time zones, and you have, you know, one purpose, which is to get this report out. And so that's definitely challenging, and it's challenging also when you then have another client who also is trying to get their deal at the same time. And so uh, you're definitely juggling between different projects. And then at the end of the day, part of KPMG's job is to get the report out. And so, you know, after reviewing the document, you then have to issue a report on the validity of, you know, the contents of, um, of the offering documents. How about you? Yeah, so um, a typical day. I mean, it's not that easy to describe because um, the work is... It's very individual, so you know your job is basically to uh, to generate uh, alpha or excess return. Uh, how you do that is basically up to yourself. So people have individual preferences; uh, they work very differently. But uh, in our team, we typically come in pretty pretty early in the morning, so a little over seven. It's about catching up with uh, news flow. Uh, what happened in Asia overnight, what happened in, in Europe. Um, and also we typically go through uh, brokerage reports. So the investment banks and the brokers will typically have um, teams of analysts that cover the same stocks that we look at. And the, they publish reports quite frequently on, on the companies that we look at. So we try to, we try to read most of that. Um, basically to test our own uh, theories so you want to you want to try to find you want to try to find um, basically uh, a story you want to test your your theory so it's always interesting to to read uh, people who disagree with your view so you try to test your uh, your uh, your views constantly and it's it's a lot of uh, critical thinking um, and also, um, typically we do a bunch of meetings. So it would be meetings with uh, company executives, with management, uh, and also with uh, analysts. Um, would the analysts be at the company or an analyst at other at No, so the analysts would typically be with the investment banks. Oh, so right. Macquarie, for instance, yeah. I mean, they would have a, a team that covers you know, U.S., Stocks. I was just thinking about that because I dealt with those guys in the yeah. I mean, they spend most of their day doing building financial models exactly. and then stress testing them more. You know, as soon as a bit of information comes out from the company, they're straight to their computer, adjust their <laughs> model and get a, get a note out to the clients and yeah. say, given this information, look at the way it's affected my model. Were you doing similar things? Were you actually, you know, you had a model there for each of your companies and you were constantly tweaking it whenever a bit of new, kind of new information came in or was it more about looking at what the... Uh, investment banking analysts already done. No, so we we build our own models um, independently, and then we we use the the analysts 
the external analysts to sort of sanity verify yeah, okay. what we as a sanity check, yeah. exactly. So, you know, if you find somebody that widely disagrees with your view of the world, you should probably stop and ask yourself, <laughs> <laughs> why Why is that the case? Yeah. And sometimes you can, you can tell quite easily that, you know, it's... Because a lot of the stuff that the uh, investment banks are doing, the, the work the analysts are doing, it's not... Oh, it's not of the highest quality sometimes. <laughs> we have, so it's interesting actually, so you have the buy side and the sell side. The buy side is um, typically, I mean, th those are the people who have the money, who buy, this, buy the, the stocks, buy the products, and then you have the sell side. That's the investment banks and the, the brokerage houses that um, provide external analysis. In addition to all the other things they they provide to the clients, like you know market making and, um, and stuff like that. So um, on the buy side, you have much typically much better access to company executives and working for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, mm -hmm. so we have great access to to management. So we actually have we have access to access to some information or some information channels that the the sell side of the analysts typically don't have access So that to. gives you a bit of an edge when you're so evaluating? That, yeah. yeah, that gives us a little bit of an edge. Um, well, technically, of course, you shouldn't have any no, knowledge of any information the public doesn't No, so it's right. more about, you know, a lot of the job is about reading body language and yeah. trying to read between the lines. Yeah. yeah. But When you ask them a question and then say no, it's how they say no. Right? <laughs> exactly, because everything is always great when you ask, the, when you ask executives. So it's about trying to determine what they are actually so <laughs> how makes it tricky. How about you? Well, um, first of all, I must say that I didn't have any typical day. Monday. Yeah, sure. typical Monday. It depends on the proposal that I was receiving. That uh, I was receiving. But in any case, mm, in my last role, probably my most important task was to produce a very concise report to the top management, even to the CEO of the company. Whenever we the banks was mm, were. Uh, was receiving proposal basically it could be a proposal for financing a leverage buyout with a private equity firm or even a proposal from securitization desk or a standard loan to a to a multinational company uh, if it if it was uh, above a certain threshold uh, it had to go through this uh, sort of internal committee and I was in charge of producing the final documents uh, uh, who went to the internal committee. So I basically collected all the information for different stakeholders. Uh, I received the proposal from the product desk and then I have to do some checks with risk management, with credit departments and so on and then to summarize everything and to give a final recommendation to top executive if that uh, proposal uh, was uh, profitable or not. And if there were, for instance, if it was not profitable, maybe there were some cross-selling opportunities in the future and we have to take that into account. So, I mean, in a typical day, you may arrive on a Monday and maybe you receive a, you receive a call from Hong Kong and they have a project finance deal that they want to, be, they want to, to finance. And so you have to go through all the process and to do all the... All the checks that I was um, talking about, uh, eventually. And, and does that process differ on the size of the deal, or is it pretty similar no matter what? what well, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, my role came at the end. Mm -hmm. My role came at the end, but sometimes the deal, mm, 
might have been pretty complex. So it wasn't always the same thing. Sometimes it was pretty standardized. You have to go through all the all the checks, and it was fine. You can do it in a maybe in a hour or something like that. And sometimes it was extremely complex. And, and moreover, people are all over the world because in my case we have like branches in Asia or in New York or in South America or in Europe and so on. So you have to talk with a lot of people. Belonging also to different cultures and you know, operating in different markets, and it was probably the most challenging and the most entertaining part of my previous job. And moreover, sometimes you have to say no to people because they think that their deal is great, mm. and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not, and saying no is actually yeah. pretty tough sometimes. So, for people who might be listening to this, who might be considering a career switch into finance, so I mean, obviously, the MBA is one route that people can get some technical skills and make that transition. But I was also wondering, in terms of the make, you know, just the character and the makeup. So, one thing that seems to be jumping out at me here is it does seem quite relentless in terms of the pace and the intensity of the field. So, I just wanted to get your thought. You know, you would have worked with many analysts and associates, and some would have been great and some pretty bad. And so, what marks out? You know, what does it take to be successful in this field in terms of two or three qualities you think that might actually, you know, mean that this career is for you versus not? And I said, I'm also wondering whether there's any subtle differences, you know, in risk versus that, or whether actually the underlying qualities are, are actually quite similar. So, it'd just be good to get a sense of that. From... Yeah, it seems like one of the biggest things is probably interest. If you're really interested in structured finance, you know, you really got to understand, you know, what is the product? What is, you know, what are the underlying risks involved, you know, with the transaction? And for those who are really interested, you know, you'd want to read the whole prospectus, you know, supplement, the whole offering documents to really understand, you know, what is this transaction made up of? How, how is the payout structure? You know, who gets paid first? Why is it this way? You know, and I feel like that's probably the number one reason for success. So but, but I mean, even broader than just instructed finance, I think it's yeah. about an interest in the industry, right? Like exactly. It's be, you've got to yeah. have some kind of interest in the banking or finance world. I mean, a lot of people you know, like to talk about how important finance is because, you know, without banks, banking and finance, you know, the world wouldn't you know, stop spinning, basically. It keeps the world going around. But there's a lot of other things you can do with a very similar skill set. Mm. Um, so it's, it's having that skill set that you've already identified, but also having an interest in why the banking world works the way it does and how finance works the way it does. But in terms of a skill set across the, the whole industry, I can't think of, of you know, two or three because it's just such a wide range. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about it before. There's, you can work in finance in an HR department. You can work in a, as an investment banker. You could work as a lawyer. You could, you know, sure. the, the, the kind of spread is so wide. But I think even the, the, the one aspect that captures all of those people is just some underlying interest in, you know, why the banking world works the way it does. And so, you know, Verlin and Wesley, like if you were saying making a hire into your firm or something, how, what sort of things could people, what would you expect to see that demonstrated interest? You know, what sort of things would you expect to see in a CV or in terms of I think of first activities? you have to demonstrate that you have the very strong, like, quantitative skill. Because I think, like, finance is especially, like, front office or investment team is all about, um, I mean, accounting and quantitative skills are just a prerequisite. Uh, on top of that, you have to have really strong curiosity in basically everything because investment is all about you stand bef- uh, in advance of the tra- trend and you identify the opportunities that pe- other people haven't identified yet. Mm. So you have to be re- have strong curiosity in everything, every aspect of life. Yeah, so I think what I would like to see is um, a strong interest in making investments and thinking about investments. So a typical trait would be, you know, I made my first stock investment when I was 
think 12 years old, right? Um, we used one of my neighbor's uh, dad's online accounts <laughs> to buy, you know, seven stocks, me and a group of friends, right? And I think um, if you see something like that, it shows a, a natural sort of authenticity in, to that. Yeah, interest in, in, in the market and, and understanding how it works. Now, the, this, the second thing I would say is um, I think you need to be a little bit different because, you know, most people, they don't make money in the stock market, right? So you have to be, you have to be a little bit different. You have to be willing to, to look at the world uh, from a slightly different angle than what most other people choose. Um, so that could be, um, I mean, it, it's hard to explain, but... You know, you meet with uh, other investors and, you know, 90% of them tend to ask all the same questions. But then you meet a few people who are typically very successful and they, they ask questions in a slightly different way and, and about slightly different things. And it's actually quite um, remarkable when, when, you, when you're in a meeting with those people and you pick up on it really quickly uh, that these guys are sort of better than, than everybody else. They're doing things So it's almost like you're saying avoiding the herd mentality and kind of having your own... You, yeah, you, yeah, exactly, because it's so easy to get... So, you know, in, when, we, when we learn about investment uh, evaluation in, in the finance course in an M MBA program or a master's in finance program, it's very sort of process-driven. You know, you start at one thing and you end up with a valuation you know, point estimate... And it, it seems very simple, but in the real world, I mean, it's very, very difficult. And everybody works with basically the same information. So you have to be, you have to be slightly different and, and take a different view to be successful. That makes sense. I would like to add that uh, finance is a huge world. And probably, uh, I mean... Mm, the qualities that you are required to be a successful trader are not those who are required to be a successful associate in investment banking or uh, in a coverage team or risk management or so on. As wisely said, basically I think that you need to have some strong quantitative skills, but they may not be exactly the same. And sometimes also relationship and client relationship management are very important, especially when you are dealing with uh, multinationals uh, and so on. So I definitely agree with everyone else said, but uh, there actually may be a, a lot of, uh, of skills that may be required in finance because it's a huge world. Here we are providing some insights about our specific role, but uh, there is much more but apart the, from that. I know at the junior level, the investment banks aren't looking for um, a particular set of skills, yeah. they're rather looking for intelligent, motivated people that they, they can then mould into you know, money-making machines. Mm. So it's, not, it's rather about having the skills already, it's, it's about having the, you know, the IQ, the EQ and the, and the motivation, and, um, which you know, these guys already mentioned. If you're talking about, about a very junior level in investment banking, you have to know about valuation, you have to have uh, ex exceptional Excel skills uh, to be very number-oriented and so on. They are pretty similar, but this is just the beginning. Mm. If you would like to, if you want to evolve, apart from being successful, you also need to develop some client relationship management skills. 
So we're um, coming up for time, but I'd like to just ask you a couple of other questions before we wrap up. So the first is, to what extent has technology kind of changed? I mean, you know, even within the span of the few years that you guys have been doing your jobs, I imagine there's a lot of technology in your role. And has it changed the sort of job you've been doing? And if you were to kind of, you know, extrapolate that out maybe into the kind of next five years or something, how do you do you see the nature of the job changing? Or do you think actually, it, you know, in your particular function, it is, there's always going to be a need for, I'm not trying to say would you be automated out of the business, but I'm just interested in how the technology that you've been, the way you interface with it and how that's changed kind of what you're doing and what you spend your time on. I guess risk would probably be a good yeah, place to start. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, when you say um, you're not saying that we'd be automated out of the business, but I can see in probably 18 months to two years time, there'll be a good chunk of compliance work that is automated. And that'll be just, a, that'll just be purely a those compliance people move on and un- fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, fortunately, <laughs> compliance and risk are growing exponentially in other areas, so I don't see job losses there. But there's a huge chunk of compliance which is about reviewing trades or, or deals in the last 24 to 48 hours and the way that we can now automate that process and look for red flags and we've, you know, the investment banks have automated that very well. There's a lot less of people looking at those and a lot more of computer algorithms looking at them. There still needs to be a person reviewing it at the end of the day because a lot of it comes down to what the instruction was, what it meant, how it affected the market. It doesn't come down to a percentage term. So do you think that would just change the number of people needed or do you think it changes what you then do and it's sort of, I mean, how... Yeah, well, it's changing the skill. I mean, once the program's in place, you still need people who understand the underlying logic of the program, but the person at the end, their skill set's changing because they need, they not only need to understand understand the underlying logic, but they also need to be able to talk to a trader, they need to be able to understand the instruction, they need to be able to report that up. I mean, most of what a compliance risk officer does is put these things in a report and it goes up to a higher, higher management. So it's putting quite complicated combination of what's actually happened in a trade or, or an investment banking deal, overlay that over the top of the regulation and the law and say it's okay or it's not okay for reasons X, Y, Z. So it's like Please a multilingual translator. Just well, kind of, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, so uh, I think, yeah, like Nick mentioned, I think most of the uh, repetitive like work uh, will be replaced by machine, maybe in the near future. For example, um, in our area, like we have to do financial modeling. So you have this work to like input some data, the previous like financial data. I think that will probably would to be taken by machine very soon mm-hmm. but that also means that um, but yeah as Pat also mentioned that investment is not about like just numbers or, or quantitative it's or, uh, there's a lot of elements like people elements or, or the market that actually require judgment and ex- experience that but I think that in that sense the technology won't change the industry that much it's like Erlen was saying it's the it's that bit of difference that you've got, that, yes. that quirk that you've got or the assumption that you make that others don't make, that's where the value that's where the value is. comes. So actually it becomes even more important to have yeah. those sort of yeah. skills. Aaron, what about you and your Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I feel like technology is definitely automating a lot of the processes and if not automating, making them a lot faster. And so uh, it seems like at least in structured finance, there's specific software to structured finance that you'll use for collateral analysis. And I don't know how it is for other finance jobs, but it seems like as technology progresses, there's becoming more specific software for specific roles within finance, which makes whatever role you're working in much easier. And there's a lot of lot of money to be made in that uh, overlap between software development and finance. Mm. You know, that's a huge, huge growing market. If you've got those combination of skills, also you're a career choice, I guess, for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, it's, it's a hell of a place to look into. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, as I worked f- for four years now uh, 
in, in investment management, and I haven't really seen that big of a change caused by, by technology. For us, the most interesting uh, aspect of technology is how it changes the companies that we invest in. So in banking, for instance, how um, customers are moving away from physical branches and, and using uh, you know, mobile apps and, and, and more, call it maybe second generation ATMs, full service ATMs, and how the banks can actually save quite a bit of money from that transaction from, from physical to digital. Well, uh, I would like to provide a, a slightly broader perspective about that, especially about people who are considering a, um, joining finance and banking in particular, because uh, banking, and banking, investment banking in any way is probably one of the most popular destinations. But I think that the industry is actually really struggling for a couple of reasons. Uh, on the one hand, the regulator are imposing, not enduring after the financial crisis, as a stronger constraints on the activity of banking. And they are requiring basically more capital, and the return on this capital is plummeting for several reasons. One is the competition that Erdogan was uh, uh, mentioning for retail banking, because uh, banks which have a very uh, burdened structure with lots of branches and so on, they are struggling, and they will be struggling even more in the future, because, you know, with the millennials coming, uh, everything will be online. Or, and on the other hand, uh, you also have constraint in corporate banking and so on because there are so many regulations and so much capital is required. So if you look at the, if you if you read the newspaper in these days, you are seeing that lots of banking are actually strain, are actually struggling in Europe, and they are supposed to cut lots of jobs in the in the coming years. I think that bank m m may need to become leaner and more fee oriented, and this is definitely a hard task. This is definitely a hard task. So if you are considered to join bank, if you are considered to join finance, maybe you would like to consider something different. Mm. Uh, I mean, here we have uh, representatives from different mm, subsectors of finance, like private equity or a professional advisory firm or a, or a sovereign fund. Uh, I think it may be worthwhile to consider this destination instead of the traditional investment banking. Yeah, it's probably really good note for us to wrap up on because I think uh, one thing this has shown is that the traditional idea of just you know graduating going into an IB and coming up that doesn't necessarily that's not finance you know finance is a much broader finance world. is much broader yeah. and as I say that the traditional banking and even investment banking are actually struggling in these yeah. days and I'm not very optimistic about I'm not very world. optimistic about the future and I'm not the only one I'm not <laughs> the only one I saw, I saw a report from McKinsey uh, just like in October I think that transaction banking which is now one of the cash cows for banking is yeah. going to mm, lose lots of its profitability in the, in the coming years due to competition from fintech or for Google Pay or whatever. So, mm, But what it's doing is making the value add now is identifying the opportunity with all of these regulations and with all of the compliance costs. So, you know, a big part of the what compliance and risk management functions investment banks are now trying to do, now that they've got over the point of let's just stop hemorrhaging money and fines, They've now saying, right, well, now that we've given, now that we know that these compliance rules are coming in, how can we spy opportunities through those compliance? So if you can find a way to navigate your, you know, your thinking into opportunity rather than just avoiding the... I mean, but you may want to look for less traditional rules than an investment mm. banking associate, for instance. Yes, that's, what I, that's what I want to say. I mean, I, 
we know that lots of people are coming to business schools or straight after their university, oh, I would like to join investment banking as an associate that I'm going mm -hmm. to do lots of money and so on. Well, it's still like this, but it's not as it used to be. And maybe um, they may want to consider uh, alternative positions in the finance industry or alternative roles in banking, like risk and compliance, which are probably not as fancy as, uh, as investment banking, but there may be more opportunities. So I think it's probably a good place to wrap up. But before I do, I want to throw a wild card question out there that I asked the other group as well. Mm -hmm. So I think you guys have to do it was in the consulting podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to a dinner tomorrow night and I want to pretend that I work in finance. So there's a lot of jargon that tends to be associated with any industry. So what's your favorite sort of if it, finance term that if I was to throw out there, it would make me look like sort of a, a part of your club. So give you what's your oh, structured uh, finance. It's for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go for days on jargon. What's your favorite one? The one that, you know, I, yeah, I just, just to throw it out there if anyone has a particular term or, or it's or now common vocabulary. So it's hard to remember what's, <laughs> it's hard to differentiate what's jargon, what's, what's not anymore. But, uh, Collateralized debt, that's always a good one, right? If you can say that and at least pretend like you know what it really means. There we go, collateralized. <laughs> I, I like credit default swap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just throw that down. You don't even, you just say CDS, right? Yeah. Just Let's go for leverage buyout. Leverage buyout? <laughs> yeah. Well, is it you have one? Yeah, maybe mezzanine finance. That's yeah, good. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate you taking part. Um, and I hope some of you listening picked up an insight or two that may you know, shape or inform your career plans. If you have any questions on how an MBA or we have an MFIN pr um, program here at uh, JBS as well could help you transition into a finance career, don't hesitate to get in touch with the team here. I think we can all vouch for how friendly and open they are. Uh, thank you for listening.